Not all squirrels bury nuts. Gray squirrels do. Red squirrels don't. Red squirrels store their food above ground. Gray squirrels forage for nuts, dig holes in the earth, and essentially plant them there. Gray squirrels don't benefit significantly from their lives devoted to this sort of hoarding, but sometimes others do because they are a great source for planting trees. This happens when the nuts that they so diligently seek and bury are not collected and eaten. In fact, for all their hard work gathering and amassing nuts, gray squirrels, who always seem to be so busy and often risk their lives urgently running from one side of the street to the other, profit from, meaning remember and return to, about one-fourth of their stash. In other words, gray squirrels store up three times more than they will ever use and receive no value at all from the majority of their enormous acorn wealth. On the one hand, that seems kind of silly, doesn't it? Such a waste of time for that squirrel. It comes to nothing. And on the other, we might be wondering, I suspect you are, what on earth does that have to do with us? We ask this as we shift the boxes in our basements around one more time. As we hew out a path in our garage so we can get to one of our automobiles. As we make another trip to the storage unit that we rent to either drop something off or pick something up that we do not have enough room to store in our home as we avoid the attic because it is so full of stuff that has become an intimidating space. What are you storing up? What are you pursuing under the premise that it will provide something that it never will? What are you spending that you will never get back to gather what you will never use? Perhaps most importantly, an advantage that we have over gray squirrels who are destined to live unexamined lives, we have insight, at least the potential for insight. Why do you live this way? Why do you do these things? The parable that we're looking at today, the parable of the rich fool, Jesus cautions us about the blinding effects of greed. Instead of banking on earthly riches, he encourages us to be rich toward God. Father, as we come to your word now, it is our intent, our heart's desire to sit under it, to sit at your feet, to be taught by your spirit, to hear your voice and receive into ourselves the blessed words of life and truth which is yours, which you wish to impart to us this day. Help us to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. So in our text this morning from the 12th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Jesus is called upon to mediate a conflict. Two brothers appear to be at odds over an inheritance. And at least one of them is fairly consumed by this conflict. We might ask, well, how do we know that he's consumed by it? We know it because of this. Jesus is in the middle 
of speaking to his disciples. He's addressing them, but he's also addressing a very large crowd, a crowd of thousands that had gathered to hear him. And he's talking to them about some very serious things. He tells his followers, for instance, not to be afraid of those who can kill the body, insinuating that if they wish to be his disciples, it's going to put them at risk, even the risk of death. He warns them if they will acknowledge him before men, he will acknowledge them before the angels of God. But if they disown him before men, he will disown them before the angels of God. He cautions them against the unpardonable sin and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he tells them not to worry about defending themselves when, not if, but when they are brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities to explain themselves, to explain why. They follow and worship Jesus. It is in the very context of these incredibly weighty matters, life and death matters, that someone, we don't even know his name, he's just someone in the crowd, a jilted sibling cries out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That is not how Helen Lemmel drew it up. Now that name, Helen Lemmel, may not ring a bell, but I suspect the words of the song she wrote will. She said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, it doesn't always work that way, does it? It didn't here. The things of the earth make up the stuff that we have to deal with day in and day out, and that stuff, if we're not careful, becomes our primary concern, becomes our focus. Truth be told, it's fairly easy to lose the eternal kingdom perspective if one ever had it in the middle of trying to live life. And it's easy to become overly concerned with the things of earth. Most of us understand this full well. Being more concerned with the things of earth than we are the things of heaven. The here and now, it looms larger than the there and not yet. Especially if one perceives, especially if one perceives that she or he has been treated unfairly. Right? Sometimes our sense of being treated unfairly hits a big pause button in our lives. And we don't grow past it. Suffering injustice or even a perceived injustice can occupy a lot of space in our brains. It can become an obsession. It can even become an identity. It can certainly become an obstruction to our seeing and hearing things properly. And so this brother, sitting or standing in the crowd, is looking full in the Savior's wonderful face, isn't hearing anything that Jesus is saying. And why is that? It's because he's preoccupied. He's preoccupied with himself. He comes to Jesus not to listen, but to harness the authority of this great teacher and bring it to bear on his domestic dispute. He comes to get Jesus to tell his brother what to do. Teacher, tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me. But Jesus doesn't mediate the conflict. He doesn't do what's asked of him. At least he doesn't do it way this brother hoped, because there's something more pressing at play here. There's something more important than who gets what by when. 
Remember that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And Jesus senses what's in this man's heart, and so he speaks, addressing not just the brother, but the whole crowd, which sort of indicates to us that it may not be something that's reserved only for the heart of this man. It may be something that all of us wrestle with as well. He tells them this parable, and if you're reading along, you pick up in the 16th verse. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich. So a little cautionary note, right, to those of you who are tempted to check out for the rest of this message because you think the story I just read is about a rich man, and given your bank balance, you're pretty sure that nothing from this point on is going to apply to you. You do not consider yourself to be rich. I want to remind you that most of the people who had gathered around Jesus, most of the thousands who were there listening to him, were not rich either. The issue that Jesus addresses here is greed. And one does not have to be wealthy to be greedy. King James translates it covetousness. And what that means is it's a heart attitude uh, demonstrated by an unlawful desire to have the property of another, a greedy desire for more. Covetousness is so common and such a concern of God that it made his top ten laws. Thou shalt not covet, tenth commandment. Why, we might wonder, would God include covetousness in his top ten laws? Why would he include a command that forbids it? Author Andrew Cameron answers, The tenth word reveals what's been at work all along. The problem of the inner world that drives perjury, theft, adultery, murder, contempt for loving authority, overwork, and false or absent worship. R.C. Sproul explains it in a more pastoral way. He says, maybe God knows something about what it is that leads to stealing. Maybe God knows something about what it is that leads to jealousy. Maybe God knows something about what it is that leads to murder, to war, when people are at each other's throats because one person has more than the other and one person wants for himself what God in his beneficence has graciously bestowed upon someone else. I want your money. I want your car. I want your job. I want your wife. Most of us may not know what it means to be rich. But many of us know very well what it is to want what someone else has. To desire to be blessed how someone else is blessed. Most of us can relate, relate to that little tinge of anger or jealousy when somebody that we know or care about or maybe even someone that we don't like at all receives something that we want, something that we desire, Maybe even something we feel that we deserve. We understand that. And even when we have all we need, 
which most of us would testify that. Not everybody here, but most would testify here. I have all I need. But even when we have all we need and we're willing to say it, we still entertain thoughts about how we could have more. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what's on display right here in front of him. Don't be, don't be deceived by the idea that the issue at hand that brings out the story is one of money or material goods or inheritance. This is about covetousness. It just happens to be about an inheritance, a family dispute where one brother, perhaps both brothers, are guilty of greed. One wants something that he doesn't have. The other is quite possibly holding on to something that he's not rightfully entitled to. But Jesus tells his hearers, and he tells us, watch out and be on guards against all kinds of greed. Against all kinds. He cautions us this way because greed, because covetousness is destructive. It tears families apart. It puts people on the wrong side of the law. How many times have we heard about people breaking the law to go and get something that they felt they deserved? It sets siblings at odds as it's done right here in this story. It leads to conflict. You could very well be part of this congregation sitting here today and you can relate to this completely because there is conflict in your family over inheritance, over a will, over property over something that somebody thought this person doesn't deserve it and this person does. It robs us of peace. Two brothers here are in conflict because of greed. Now back to the parable. The central character in this parable is a rich man. He starts off the story as a rich man. He's not getting rich. He is rich. And he's been rich for a long time. And because he's had a particularly fruitful season of crop growing, he stands to become even richer. He has such an abundance of produce and grain that he has no place to put it. And when, when I say that out loud, some of you are probably thinking in your hearts, man, that's a good problem to have. Boy, I wish I had a problem like that. I'm standing here today saying you probably do. You probably do if you took an assessment, if you took an inventory, if you looked around, you're blessed this way too. It turns out it's not going to be a good thing. I don't, spoiler alert. This is before the advent of the U-Store industry. This is before uh, anybody could drop a few pods off at your house and you could just fill them up with the junk and leave it in your driveway. He wonders, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. What shall I do? Charles Spurgeon, the old British preacher, chimes in here. He says, there were empty cupboards in the houses of the poor, and there were hungry children to be filled, so this man need not have lacked room where he could bestow his food. This, by the way, is part of what it means to be rich toward God. Jesus would go on in just a few verses. If you look ahead, say verses 32 to 34. And he would say, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is there will your heart be also. The answer to the question, what shall I do with my, uh, my abundance, is if you have more than you need, give some of it away. If you have more than you need, give it to the needy. 
But that's not the answer that this rich man came up with because he's selfish. He doesn't think charitably because he is preoccupied with himself. He has plenty, more than enough. He could easily part with his excess, but see, he doesn't see it as excess, which confirms one of the dangers of wealth that Solomon shares with us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He writes, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. You see, the issue isn't having money. The issue is loving it. The vilification of the rich and the successful in our society today should alarm everyone. There's nothing wrong with having money. The sin is when we love money, when we love money more than others, when we love money more than God, when we serve money. And that's what Solomon is trying to warn us about to be careful of this trap of, of wealth accumulation. It becomes an obsession. It is said of John D. Rockefeller that he was asked how much money is enough, and his response was $1 more. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. And so wealth is a snare for some who will, because of it, commit their lives to accumulating more or spend their lives doing everything they can to make sure they don't lose what they have. Such a person knows nothing about the what Puritan writer Jeremy Burroughs called the, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. What is the rare jewel of Christian contentment? He said it is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Being satisfied with what God has deemed fit to bless you with and to find that to be enough. But this rich man is not like that. He comes up with a plan to tear down his barns and to build bigger ones to house his crops. He wants to build bigger barns because he's greedy. He has plenty, but he wants to be able to accommodate more, and he wants to be able to accumulate more. His plan seems so good to him that he has a conversation with himself commending it. He's very proud of himself and his plan. He talks to himself about it. Eleven times you see in this little section, this little self-talk piece, you hear the word I or a reference to my. And some have actually surmised that his wealth has always been uh, such a consuming factor in his life that he doesn't have any family or friends that he can talk about with it that he has to have a conversation with himself because he doesn't have anybody in a circle of friends that he could talk to about it because he's become so consumed. Now, that's way more than this parable allows, but it, it's not completely out of line now, is it? We know for sure that it, it, it is true that some people in their pursuit of wealth have alienated, have, have alienated their closest friends, have isolated themselves from their family members, have destroyed relationships, their most meaningful relationships, including a relationship with God. You see, it was true then and it's true now. Some people are so doggone busy making money that they don't have any time for anyone else, including God. Author and speaker Pamela Baker Powell, in an essay on the lost spiritual discipline of friendship, 
in a book titled Tending Soul, Mind and Body, writes, the truth is that we've all been fed a cultural myth that the two most important things in life, the two goals that give life its meaning, are wealth and bold independence. And what's the result of all this materialistic striving and extreme social in independence? Loneliness. Deep, heartbreaking loneliness. She says, it is distressing to consider that these are some of the prominent influences forming secular America in character and in soul. Now, this is not just an American problem, is it? This is an age-old problem. These influences have been around for a long time. The idea that he who dies with the most toys wins is not new to us. The idea that you should be fiercely independent and take your direction from no one and no thing is not new to us. This rich man lives in this world and he ponders his bigger barn building business plan and he says, I will say to my soul, you have ample goods. You're all set. You are good to go. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Ample goods for many years, except he didn't consider the years of his life are determined by God. That his very existence was because of God. The Apostle James weighs in on this kind of presumptuous planning in the fourth chapter of his epistle. In verses 13 to 15, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Neither Jesus nor James has any problem with planning for the future. Don't misunderstand that. It's okay for you to make plans for the future, but it is silly to plan for the future with no sense of who actually controls it, with no sense of who actually determines it. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right? That's what James is getting at. Instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills. This is what I'd like to do, but if the Lord's will. But this rich man is not really aware of God. He's not asking God what to do with his will. He didn't get to the end of harvest time and say, hey, this has been a great year. Lord, what would you have me to do with all this excess? He's not asking those questions. He's not thinking for a second that it was God who sent the rain. And it was God who sent the sun. And it was God who caused the growth. He's not thinking this way because his wealth is his God. And that's why we find out not only is he selfish, not only is he greedy, but he's also foolish. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The word translated required. In the NIV, I think it says demanded. This night your soul is demanded of you. It means, it means exacting something that is due. It's a commercial term used of a loan. Most of us are aware of the payment that is due. 
If you finance your home, the payment is due on such and such a date. If you finance your vehicle, the payment is due on such and such a date. That's what this is about, exacting something that is due. And the point here is that everyone will one day learn, if they don't know it now, they ought to. God is the author and sustainer of life. He's the ultimate lender. He's the ultimate loan holder. God owns every life, and at any time, he can call it in, and he's right there. Any time. Recent death of a 41-year-old NBA superstar, his 13-year-old daughter, seven others, tragic helicopter crash, remind us what the scripture teaches. This life is a vapor. It is here today. It is gone as quickly. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know if you will have a tomorrow. Folks who don't admit this, folks who refuse to live in this reality, the Bible calls foolish. Every life is owned by God, who is right to take it whenever he pleases, as he pleases. God calls this rich man a fool. The word properly means mindless, senseless, stupid, without reason. Gary Enrig, who wrote the parables, Understanding what Jesus meant says the term fool in biblical language is not a description of mental ability, but of spiritual discernment. He says a fool is an individual who makes choices as if God doesn't exist and who lives as if God hasn't spoken. A fool is an individual who makes choices as if God doesn't exist and who lives as if God hasn't spoken. And he does exist and he has spoken Fool is not a good name to be called by God. This is not what you ever want to hear God say to you. Because if you do, you have blown it. If you do, you have missed it completely. Beloved, you have one life to live. Do not blow it. Do not waste it. Forget about yourself and give your life to God. That's how it was meant to be lived. And that's where you'll find the pleasure and fulfillment and satisfaction that you are looking for. Notice the contrast in perspectives, if you would, in this parable between God and the rich man. It's astounding, the difference between a worldly view and a godly view, between worldly priorities and God's priorities, because the rich man is so sure that he is wise. And you know what? By secular business standards, we might come to that same conclusion. But say very successful, very good at what he does. He is a smashing success in the business world. But in truth and by God's standard and God's word, he is a terrible failure. So what the world holds up as success, God's word to say, no, that is about as bad a failure as one can be. You see, because he's just getting ready to settle into a life of ease, a life that he thinks he has created, a life of comfort, a life of pleasure. He is anticipating, but he hasn't even really begun yet to enjoy all the treasures that he has stored up. He's ready. He's ready to get on with what he thinks is really going to be life. He dies. 
die. Enjoy anything. Could God help us to know you and I are going to spend far more time on the other side of this earthly life than the time that we have here, and that should inform how we live here and the choices we make here. Again, Spurgeon has something to say. He says, here our Savior shows us the frail nature of the tenure upon which we hold all earthly goods and how it is not worthwhile to make these the chief things of our life. For while they may leave us, we are quite sure by and by to have to leave them. I mean, we might lose some of what we heap unto ourselves. We might, but for sure we will leave that stuff someday. Having lived selfishly, greedily, foolishly, as commentator Albert Barnes puts it, the rich man's soul is summoned to the bar of his long-forgotten God. Are you prepared for that inevitable, impending summons? Are you ready now? If he says no. Job reminds us death is a place appointed for all the living. Brothers and sisters, that's the direction we're all heading in. Barnes continues, he says, So many are surprised as suddenly and as unprepared. They are snatched from their pleasures and hurried to a world where there is no pleasure and where all their wealth cannot purchase one moment's ease from the gnawings of the worm that Jesus concludes the parable. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is, thus is, in the same way is, the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God is what? Is a fool. You're living for here and now. If you're living for you, if you're living for things, is a fool. And what Jesus is saying to the brother who wants him to rule on an inheritance, to the crowds that surround him, to us through the transmission of his word through time is this, don't be fooled. The Son of God himself is present to teach. God in the flesh, the best teacher ever, is present to give the words of life to this brother, to give eternal life to anyone who would ask it. And this jilted brother is so caught up in his own drama that he doesn't even notice what's in front of him. He doesn't even know what could be his. He doesn't know what is of far more significance eternally than a part of his inheritance. And in response to that scene, Jesus tells this story, not coincidentally, so don't miss this, about a similar man who is similarly so preoccupied with material things and getting his own, what he thinks he deserves, what he thinks he needs, that he too doesn't recognize the more important things in life. It could be his. And the application or the challenge to us is, don't be this way. That's what it is. Don't be this way. Miss what's available in Jesus forever by being consumed with what we think we need now. 
we can hold up the mirror of this parable and ask ourselves, and I, I'd ask you to do this, what am I chasing? What am I working for? What am I believing that I must have to be happy or I must have more of in order to be satisfied? What am I missing? What am I sacrificing? What is the focus and what is the cost that I'm paying? Jesus says, don't be foolish to live for yourself without giving consideration to God. Foolish to be so obsessed with the things of earth that you forfeit the joys of heaven. Foolish to put your trust in wealth. It's foolish to be consumed by the desire for things you cannot keep and that cannot save you. It's foolish to live with no thought to your mortality and the life which is to come. So Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard because greed will blind you and greed will dull your spirit. And before you know it, your bell will toll and you will stand before God Almighty and you will give an account for your life. And when you do, what will he call you? Daughter, good, faithful servant. Ooh. Take a few moments to reflect on this passage. And I would ask you to let the Holy Spirit search your hearts. None of us knows what's in our heart. We think we do. Only God can reveal that to us.